Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, October 12th. Personal stories we hear from a Hawaii resident grieving the loss of lives in the attack on Israel this weekend and the close call for two of his loved ones. Nearly $140 million collected for the Maui Strong Fund in the last two months. So where is it all going exactly? We sit down with the CEO of the Hawaii Community Foundation, Mike Kane. And we've had warnings about scam fundraisers, the latest from state regulators, and lots of hand-wringing over the economy as we hear about an upcoming economic conference. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Mari Gorondrechek is a special education teacher at Kaimuki High School. He also coaches football and was at a game on Saturday as he was getting texts about the attack on Israel. It's where he's from and it's where his family still lives. He was distraught not knowing if his loved ones were dead or alive as Hamas terrorists closed in. It was a life-or-death situation in real time from across the globe for his best friend and his sister. We reached him this morning. He recalled the agonizing time on the field as two people close to him shared texts about how close they came to becoming casualties in this conflict. We were at a game at Pearl City, and I'm texting my friends asking what what is going on, and they're telling me, Mati, this is rockets like we've we've never heard before. We picked up the, the, the kids and we run into the safe room. They have a safe room at, at the mom's house. And they, they were just sitting in the safe room thinking it's only rockets. The small kibbutz that they live, that they stayed at is right by the border. The only thing that separates the border is a little bit of agriculture land. And all of a sudden I started hearing shooting. They're hiding with three little kids. The oldest one is five-year-old. And they're hiding in the, in the safe room over there. And they were like, okay, like, we'll be okay. But it never stopped. And they started hearing people screaming and shouting in Arabic outside. And they were hiding there. They were hiding in that room for 14 hours with three kids, the grandparents, no water, no food, no place to go bathroom, hoping that no one's going to come in. And while I was texting them the whole time over there, my sister finally answered. And she was like, they said the moment the sirens started being too much, they don't have a safe room in their house. But my sister-in-laws, who live a minute and a half away, have a safe room. So they run over there with my two-year-old niece. And all my brother-in-law siblings also made their way with their, with their kids, with, with their partners and tens of people in this run room hiding over there. And then all of a sudden, they're also starting to hear shooting going on. They live in a small town right next to a city named Ofakim. And you, you can see it's it's basically a suburb. Like for people here to understand, it's as if you're sitting at City Mill Kaimuki and and you're looking down at the H1. That's how close it is to the city. Both my sister and and my best friends were hiding in a room, praying to I don't know what that terrorists not gonna find them because all they hear is shooting going on outside, and shooting anyone and everything that they can get their hands on. And at at some point, and and I'm. I'm sorry that I'm shifting between stories, but that's I, I was at the sidelines on the football field in Pearl City High School, unable to coach my, my, my kids over here. 
And my head coach is like probably looking at me like, well, well what's going on with you? Um, he understands now. Well, just the horror of it, you know, the people that you love that were close to you going through this terrible yeah. thing that we now know is just awful. It's, it's more than awful. It's, they're not human beings. It's not, they're not, you can't even call them animals. At first, they used to call them animals, but animals don't kill for fun. Animals kill for survival. They just killed everything. And right before this phone call, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the news. I'm, I'm on social media. Like it's, it's a nightmare for your soul to do all that. But I just like, I can't stop. And I just, on Instagram, someone just shared uh, two photos of, of, of babies who were burnt alive. And my, my friends and family who were hiding in a room, praying that no one's going to kill them. And, and when the Hamas terrorists went into my best friend's house, the house she grew up at, she had to, she had to tell her kids who were crying. I was like, okay, I've, no clue where she, she thought about this. But she was like, we need to practice not breathing like at the swimming pool. And that was the only way to make them be quiet. And she was, she was telling me that. And I was already starting to say, I'm at Pearl City High School on the, on the football field. And I'm texting my friend, like, I love you guys so much. We're basically saying my goodbyes. She even says, I don't even know why they didn't try to break down the door. Because if they would have tried, they would have gotten in easily. She doesn't know what was the reason they didn't. Thank heavens they all survived. But you say, you know, you're finding more news out every day. And you were a coach yeah. there in Israel. And, and you said yeah. that your students didn't survive. Yeah. So one, one of my players was at this rave. There was this big rave party. We, know, we now have confirmed 260 people dead over there. At least one of those people I know personally, he was one of my players in, in the team that I was managing back home over there. He was, he was American. He was born in America, an American Jew, moved to Israel and just wanted to keep playing football. He stayed in Israel and he, he loved it over there. And during that rave, when the terrorists just started shooting everyone, people were just partying for fun. From what I, I heard, he saved his girlfriend's life. He kept sending, I don't know to who, but he kept sending locations of where people at. But he took care of others before taking care of himself. Eventually, they got to him. You also served in the military over there. So I served in the IDF and Israel Defense Forces from 2006 to 2008. Almost every Israeli, mandatory service. And uh, I served in a combat unit. And I was actually stationed down in, Ga in the Gaza Strip for uh, almost almost a whole year. We were stationed down there, very close to all those little towns that were affected by all of this. So I'm, I'm well aware of, of the area. I'm well aware of how everything looks like over there. I'm on, besides watching everything on the news and on social media, like it's burnt in my head, all those images that like, I know exactly where everything is. I know it, it's, it's just, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. I really want to thank all my friends over in Hawaii, people of the DOE that I work with, teachers, my students, my players who have showed so much support, like unbelievable amount of just emotional support. And that's honestly all we need uh, at those times. And, and I pray, I pray for, for peace in this world. I pray for not having barbaric people in this world. I really hope that we can, we can free Gaza from the hands of Hamas who control the, the poor people over there. They deserve a better leadership, a leadership that is not bloodthirsty, a leadership that is seeking peace and seeking to live in harmony with, with their neighbors and not 
a leadership that is looking to to hurt people in the most horrific ways. Yeah. Well, we hope for peace too, Maddie. And but thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Take care. Aloha. Thank you. Bye. Very personal, very powerful story. That was Maddie uh, Gorondachek, football coach and special education teacher at Kaimuki High School. The East Honolulu resident was willing to share what his loved ones had been going through since the surprise attack on Israel this weekend. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring LEED certification services. GreenBuildingHawaii.com. I'm Marco Werman. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declares his nation is at war. And now concerns are growing that fighting could spread beyond Gaza and Israel. The latest from the Middle East and all the day's news, that's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. The Hawaii Community Foundation has raised close to $140 million for the Maui Strong Fund. That's believed to be an unprecedented outpouring of support following the Maui wildfire disaster. If you donated, you may be wondering how the money is being distributed. Are the immediate needs of the affected families and businesses being met? And if the funds aren't being distributed right away, what is the long-term plan to support them in the years ahead? CEO Mike Akane dropped by our studios yesterday to talk about that, um, how that money is being distributed through the community. It's been quite a journey. We've got more than 270,000 contributors to the Maui Strong Fund over the last 60 days. Um, nearly 60 countries are represented, close to $140 million. We've put a little more than $30 million out into community already that it's gone out in a very rapid response way, just getting essential goods to families. I think that's what we committed to do, to really make sure that families got the resources they needed, you know, in that first 30 days. And I think with the support of, of other organizations like Red Cross, Maui United Way, the County of Maui, and the State of Hawaii, I think collectively that's that's been actually fairly well executed. So I'm real proud of the work that the collective group has done to date, and I think we're starting to look at that next phase of, of, of the disaster right now. Okay, so this first phase, you were able to get money into the hands of organizations that were already in place in our community. Yeah, that's correct. Prior to the uh, disaster hitting, uh, the White Community Foundation established MOUs with each of the counties that established these strong funds. And so each of the counties have a strong fund structure. Prior to that, we were able to get very trusted committed donors that we have relationships with to commit about a million dollars to any disaster that occurred within the state. You know, they committed to seed fund that. And so that's really what kick-started the effort off was the advanced establishment of these funds, the protocols that were in place, the nonprofits that we felt we would need to activate and source up very quickly. And as a result of that, I think we were able to get into the field within 24 hours of establishing or activating the Maui Strong Fund. 
Okay, so our listeners may not know that that's how this money got funded. It was immediate during this you know, first phase, and you got it into the hands of the people in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, you know, I was actually in Kohala at a retreat at a project that we're involved in, and there were fires both in, uh, on Hawaii Island as well as on Maui. I got home that evening on August 8th, had a conversation with some of our executive leadership team members. We made a decision to, to activate or make a recommendation to activate the fund. I talked to Peter Ho, our chair, at about 9, 9 p.m. that evening, got his approval, and then spoke to the mayor that evening at 10 o'clock. And by 8 o'clock the following morning, you know, we were distributing funds to, to key nonprofit organizations, you know, getting them ready for dealing with the disaster. And I think our communication team they really did a good job of getting that notice out on the national wire and, and took off from there. And so you've got, what, a committee then that goes through these applications when these groups come to ask for help, you know, because maybe some of these organizations just started working in the community, not thinking of getting reimbursed, but look, there's a need, we're filling it, you know, we've got the supplies, we've got the boots on the ground, we're just doing it because the need is there. Well, first and foremost, I mean, it, it uh, there is no fee you know, on on the uh, contributions that are coming into the White Community Foundation. Uh, we absorb the entire cost of administering this capital. We anticipate it's roughly between a $1.5 to $2 million expense to the organization in order on an annual basis in order to remain engaged in this work. And I think so. I think that's a, a very important point. And I, I think, you know, we've taken and been very clear about our approach, which is a four-phased approach. The first phase is really around preparing and, and getting those MOUs in place and getting donors committed. The second phase is really around rapid response. When the disaster hits, can you flush the community with resources to get, you know, essential services to those in need? We're right at that point where we're moving from rapid response into recovery and stabilization. It's the most difficult part of a disaster. You're moving from you know, just getting essential services to trying to create a interim new normal that a family can not just survive in, but thrive in over the next couple of years. It's very expensive. You're making much larger investments. And so the contributions that are coming in, you know, from people from around the world are really providing that continuity of life that government and the private sector is going to need to to rebuild, rebuild Lahaina. And so our entire 80 member staff has pivoted to support the disaster over the first 60 days. We're focusing more now on larger, bigger, less numerosity type grants right now that really are driving for leverage. Break that down for me. I mean, wh- what does that look like? So the best practice is, is when the county serves as the decision center for major decisions being made and state, federal, philanthropy, and private sector scaffold around those organizations. I think Maui County has established the resilience office being led by Josiah Nishita that partners with the FEMA Disaster Recovery Office, which is led by Daryl Oliveira. We all have to plug into those two major houses that are the decision-making center for a lot of the work going forward and our grant-making needs to leverage that work. So, you know, in the most recent announcement, which was the host family program that was announced just last week, where a combination of Red Cross, Hawaii Community Foundation, Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, and Maui County came together to 
fund a $4 million program where families could get up to $1,500 per family, $375 per person, with the intent of keeping families in a safe place that they are in now and encouraging other families to be willing to take on those affected families that don't have a place to stay. When you look at the interim new normal buckets that you want to service a family, there's six primary areas that you want to service. They're the, the ones that come to mind, housing, education, economics, health and welfare. There's an interim new normal threshold that we got to get to within each of those sectors in order for a family to be able to thrive over a period of time. And the mayor has set a goal of getting every family at that interim new normal by the end of the year, which is a very ambitious goal to set. You know, we've got 7,900 individuals still in 40 hotels that need to slowly migrate into this interim new normal position. And so, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of collaboration. It takes big investment. And there's a lot of government resources out there, but there's resources that we can position the Maui Strong Fund in a way where we're getting a seven-to-one type leverage on our donor investments that are being made. Yeah, because some of that government funding uh, comes with strings attached. I mean, you have to to be accountable for taxpayers' money. But then you've got, you know, private funds like Oprah and The Rock. You know, they've got their thing going. And other groups like that that have been able to fundraise and are trying to help people, whether it's money to buy a car Mm -hmm. so that, you know, you can get from point A to point B if you have a job or, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. it, those kinds of things. But yeah, you, you're trying to, I guess, make sure that you can shore up a family and if there's any pukas that you can right. help fill that. Yeah, I think you know the role the Maui Strong Fund can play is either a gap filler or a leverage piece for more capital to come in. Capital is one big piece of the puzzle, but also human capacity, influence capacity that you know organizations like ours and others can bring to the table in a more coordinated way. I mean, our entire leadership team is putting 100% of their time right now towards scaffolding around the leadership of Maui County. They've got great people there, but adding another leader alongside them just helps as long as there's good coordination and kind of this unconditional approach to serving the people of Maui. Building those protocols, building that structure, building a way in which resources are going to get deployed, decisions are going to be made. You're standing up a major organization in a very short period of time, coordinating a lot of issues that are complex, that have no blueprint. That was Hawaii Community Foundation's Mike Akane talking to us about the money raised for the Maui Strong Fund and the safeguards in place to make sure the money is going uh, directly to those affected, both for the short term and the long term. We'll continue our conversation with Kane after this short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. Today on The Daily, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was once dismissed as a fringe figure in the 2024 presidential race, but as he announced an independent run for the White House, he's striking fear within both the Democratic and Republican parties. I'm Mike Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30.
Let's get back to our conversation with Micah Kane, the CEO of the Hawaii Community Foundation. We're talking about the safeguards in place for the money raised for the Maui Strong Fund. Kane says each disaster needs a different think tank to address the needs of the community, which can be complicated as it is in Maui. He praised the addition of Dara Oliveria as head of the county's emergency response team, which is integral to getting the families in shelter and transitioning into more stable housing. Kane says what's key is using the money to help with immediate needs and to also leverage the funds for the long term. So as you leverage these funds, you know, looking forward, and these funds, I imagine, are going to be collecting interest. Where does that money go? Yeah, all the money that is either interest gained goes right back into the fund for distribution. Again, HCF takes no fee. It is a financial stress on our organization. We're not a big organization. It's going to probably increase our operating budget by close to 10%, maybe a little more. These are resources that our board is committed to. We're going to probably have to raise some resources for our own operation and committed to the no-fee structure. We'll remain committed to that for the duration of the fund. It's operating almost like two organizations under one right now. We've brought in a special oversight committee to make sure that there's proper oversight over the resources. We brought on some external independent directors, Jack Sui, retired First Hawaiian Bank and executive as well as a director of the TC Ching Foundation. Extremely brilliant and committed man. Eric Sonnenberg, former general counsel of Kamehameha Schools, as well as Sadeen Ota, who is a small business owner from Maui, as well as a Central Pacific Bank director. So we brought in some additional talent and they're teamed up with three HCF board members. And so I report directly to those six members and we have a special oversight protocols, processes, verification and validation as it relates to how our funds are being processed and so we're just trying to make sure that our internal infrastructure is set so that we're doing things very appropriately and, and transparent. I imagine as these applications come in for the grants, not everybody gets funded. Most of the denials are usually administrative right now because the nonprofit they're not in good standing. In some cases they're being denied because they're a nonprofit that is operating outside the state of Hawaii and we are giving preference to to local nonprofits. And then the other denial usually is occurring if there's a competing nonprofit providing the, the same service and we have a track record confidence in that nonprofit to execute and we recognize that there's additional capacity. That happens at our staff level who have an intimate understanding of the operations, governance, and capacity of these organizations. We work with over a thousand nonprofits annually each year, and so our team knows them very, very well. They know their CEOs, their executive directors, they understand who's on the boards, who's credible, who can execute. And so I have a lot of confidence in our team and the decisions they're making and the recommendations that they're bringing to us for approval. You know, that said, you know, we are losing some very valuable people in the nonprofit world, you know, Karen Town with the uh, Children and Family Service. Uh, you know, the, the, the list goes on. Folks that have been in the trenches for a long time, you know, hopefully these organizations can get re-energized. We've got now this disaster upon us. We're you know, working our way through the recovery. But you do worry about the stability of these nonprofits because the need is great. It's yeah. so great. The cycle of life for individuals that get in nonprofit work is really interesting and sometimes unfortunate because most people get into the work because they're passionate about serving a certain constituency or a certain kind of environmental place. And as you get in there, your hands are in the dirt. You're touching the stuff that 
that make you feel good. That as you move up the ladder, you get removed from that. And your work becomes two, three steps removed from the stuff that really energizes you. So burnout happens. And you're functioning in an environment that tends to be resource limited. You know, it's hand to mouth from many times. There isn't a lot of operating reserves that people can operate on. Their access to capital is different. You're treated differently as a, as a contractor with the state and county. And so it's just, you know, it's not an easy environment. I really give, you know, a lot of our leaders credit for you know, having the resiliency to stay in the, the industry for long periods of time. Karen's a good example of that. She's done a tremendous job of leading that organization. It's not easy. Well, is there anything else you want to share? I mean, I, I was thinking, gosh, your brother is a, a firefighter, and what kind of conversations did you have about this disaster? Well, I mean, he's retired now, yeah. so it's it's nice to have a soundboard, you know, with him who's been in crisis. He knows Daryl Oliveira, and when the mayor, you know, picked him up. You know, I did call him and ask his opinion, and I did know Daryl well from a crisis management standpoint, and you know, just conversations like that. My brother's a, a good soundboard. So, having been in government, I think right now it's just tremendous appreciation for the support that people from around the world have given Hawaii. I think we tend to forget how important we are to the people that have visited here, the impact that we've had on them. And then I also think it makes us really think about the role we can play in the world going forward. This, as much as it's a major crisis, it is a, I hate to put it this way, but it's a tremendous opportunity to rethink the future of Hawaii. You know, the devastation is going to give the people of Lahaina an opportunity to set an example of what a community can do, an economy can look like, you know, incorporating the, the, the multitude of cultures that are present here and finding a way forward that can be just great and models for other parts of Hawaii and other parts of the world. And it's not going to be, I think, a resource-limited exercise. It's going to be the ability for us to collaborate and care about the next seven generations and not just you know, the next two to three years. And hopefully this, on the heels of the pandemic, shows us that we really can't be so reliant on tourism. We've got to develop other industries to help ourselves. I mean, we just can't be at the mercy of, you know, the conditions Mm -hmm. uh, like we saw in the last, you know, what, five years now? (laughs) But it also showed if not for the tourism industry, we would not have seen the response we got from this disaster. I mean, the 95% of the contribution that came in came from people who came to Maui. It had a very impactful part of their life, and they gave back. You know, so, I mean, it's balancing that. You know, each of those people can be ambassadors for Hawaii for the next type of tourism, regenerative tourism model that we want. I mean, that's a it's a very special group of people that we have access to that we need to take advantage of going forward and how we invite them back to Hawaii. Yeah, so the aloha that we gave freely was a good investment. Yeah, came, right, came right back to us, you know. Aloha is a reciprocal word. You know, you give and you will receive. And that was Mike Okane, CEO of the Hawaii Community Foundation, talking to us about the Maui Strong Fund and how the donations are being spent Uh, According to the website, close to $140 million has been raised to date, with more than $25 million distributed so far.
week, the Hawaii Attorney General urged the public to remain watchful for suspicious fundraisers looking to exploit the Maui wildfire disaster. But how do you know who's fundraising in Hawaii lawfully? Well, did you know a charity has to be registered in our state to solicit donations? The conversations Russell Subiano talked with David Day, special assistant to the state attorney general, about ways we can assure the money is going into the right hands. Can you just talk about these unregistered charities, these scams, what's going on out there? I think that it's helpful to kind of think about the types of complaints that we're receiving kind of in three basic categories. Some are going to be instances where, you know, somebody raises a concern. It's something that's easily addressed. Then there's kind of the middle ground that we could anticipate receiving, where it's something that's not a charity is maybe soliciting donations, but maybe didn't know about a registration requirement or something like that. And it's something that can be cleared up. They had good intentions. Of course, you know, what everybody is most concerned about, and this is not just something that would be, you know, from Hawaii, but something that's a nationwide issue, would be obviously the the scam situations where people are soliciting donations ostensibly for Maui, but it's not going to be going from Maui at all. It'll be going for some other purpose. And so I think that those are kind of like the three gradations of the types of issues that may arise, and we're interested in all three. And so if somebody did receive a a solicitation for a donation, how can people find out whether the organization is a registered charity if they're registered to be able to solicit here in Hawaii? Or how would they be able to find out if it's a real request, you know, not a fraudulent request? And so, you know, one of the things that is good about the charitable organization space is that there are tools out there because it is a registered or a regulated industry. So I think that the two main tools that I would recommend that people look at prior to making a donation is by first checking whether or not the charity is registered with the state of Hawaii, which is a requirement to solicit donations in Hawaii. And that would be by going to www.ag.hawaii.gov slash tax. So that's the state side. To the extent that an organization is claiming that it's a 501c3 charity such that your charitable or your donation will be tax deductible, um, the IRS has a tool. And if you don't mind, I'll just read the, the link. It's apps.irs.gov slash app slash EOS. Now, that's a tool that is actually used by the Department of the Attorney General to verify the tax exempt status of organizations as well, and it can be used by the public. And those are two good tools to find out if an organization can solicit here lawfully as well as whether or not your donation to that organization will be tax deductible. When we're talking about scams, because we know that whenever there's a disaster, there's always people out there trying to exploit it for their own gain. What are some of the signs of some of the scams that the AG is aware of? Well, I think that these are the types of things that are not necessarily unique, these signs, to the charitable space. This would be with any sort of, you know, phishing, you know, internet phishing or, you know, malware type industries, because these these are people who are making these. If you are going to be making a fraudulent solicitation and taking the advantage of people's goodwill, I mean, you know, there's no sort of you can always just assume the worst about their intent. I think that the main things that people would want to look out for is, is this organization 
you know, asking for personal information. For instance, that's a telltale sign. And when I, when I mean personal information, I mean things like social security number, driver's license number, those types of things. Legitimate charity will never be asking from you. I think you always check the address from which the email comes. So if it's from an email, is it coming from some random Gmail account or does the address look legitimate with a .org at the end? One thing to note is that many charitable organizations, this isn't a complete rule, but a lot of the most legitimate or the well-established ones will use .org instead of .com as the ending to their internet site. And I think one of the other things that really needs to be emphasized is that legitimate charities will not pressure people into making a donation. Pressure tactics are another telltale sign if you feel pressured that you should really be walking away. Two months have passed since the fires, and I imagine there's been a lot of requests for donations and for assistance throughout the state. If somebody has received a solicitation and they're unsure about it, or if they've received one and they've given and they later find out it's a scam, what can these people do if they suspect the charity is not registered or if they've been a victim of the scam? Sure. To kind of begin by prefacing this by saying that I think that the number one thing is that if you don't feel comfortable or something doesn't feel right about this organization, then you should really take a step back before going into it and, and making a donation. So that's the way to sort of prevent the harm. To the extent that this is something where you've made a donation in good faith, and then afterwards you sort of have a thought, or if you are suspicious of something, what we recommend here at the department is to contact us. And that would be by contacting the Tax and Charities Division at 808-586-1480 or sending an email to our department, you know, basically just notifying us about what your concerns are at atg.charities at hawaii.gov. Doing this will notify us, and then we'll also be able to work with you and then speak with you to the extent that we're able. Is there anything else that the public should know about solicitation, especially when it comes to people trying to take advantage of our residents when it comes to the Maui disaster or for people who you know just have a big heart and they really want to help out and they just really want to know how to get their money to the people that are in need. Anything that you want to emphasize to the public? I think that people's best intentions, these sort of very good intentions that people have should really be fostered and cultivated. And what makes you know these sort of historical and, and you know, sort of real problem that emerge nationwide of people using the disasters for their own personal benefit is that it causes such harm to public confidence when it comes to donating. I think that if I could emphasize one thing, it would just be if something feels wrong, then don't make the donation, number one, because we want here at the Department of the Attorney General to ensure that money is going to help the people of Maui and not some other purpose. And number two, the extent that you have information about a charity that seems suspicious to you, if you have something that you'd like to report to us, to please report it, because this is something that the Department of the Attorney General takes very seriously. And that was David Day with the Hawaii Attorney General's Office talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll post the links to verified charities that Day mentioned uh, in the interview on the conversation page of our website later today.
quality of rail and the so-called Mauka shift. Honolulu Civil Beat uh, editor Chad Blair joins us today for our reality check. Hi, Chad. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so the story uh, we're featuring is uh, one that uh, Kevin Dayton did. Right, and when we talk about the Malka shift, we're talking about relocating some of that work along Dillingham Boulevard, right? Utilities uh, to really save some money uh, and make the, the project uh, shorter. In other words, get it done faster. It could save as much as $160 million or so. But there's consequences of that, and, and Kevin's story today is about the latest plan that the city that Hart has for Skyline, for the rail line. It's going to sacrifice more trees than was originally planned in the downtown area, 16 trees total. And that's because what they're doing is they're converting a segment of Halikavila Street into sort of a bus-only traffic corridor. So Hart initially had planned for seven trees. Now they're adding another nine along Halikavila to make room for rail. Some of those, at least five of them, are those big monkey pod trees, right? The ones that provide so much of that canopy, that shade that so many of us really enjoy. Yeah, and uh, uh, <laughs> there was a bit of uh, uh, controversy because there were some trees along Dillingham that were cleared to make way for that Malka shift. Mm-hmm. And, and initially, those trees were, were supposed to be protected because they were like 90 years old or something like that. Yeah, we ran that story not too long ago, and the 31 Kamani trees, as a matter of fact, were cut down. And getting a lot of people who didn't think that was going to be the plan. Um, as you know, there's, there's only so much uh, greenery in Honolulu. We have a lot of parks, a lot of trees, but cutting these down has really upset a lot of people. But why is this happening? Well, as Kevin reports, it, it has to do with this reevaluation plan, this report filed with the Federal Transit Administration. Now, this actually was done in August. It's all being done to comply with the federal environmental laws, but it's got a lot of people uh, really upset about this. Yes, we're curbing costs. Yes, we're going to keep it, uh, get it done sooner. But, but really, uh, this is a big sacrifice under the views of many. Right. So now we're uh, talking Halikawila and South and... Oh, gosh, yeah. And the- yeah, Richard Street, I think it's from Richard Street to Punchbowl Street to Cook Street. So remember, the, you know, the rail line, even though it started late June, early July, that's really only going from East Kapolei uh, to Aloha Stadium. And anybody that drives down Dillingham, you'll see where the rail uh, is currently going to stop, at least in construction. That's on Middle Street, right? Uh, but this thing is supposed to go all the way to what's known as the Civic Center. Nobody knows where the Civic Center is, but essentially it's downtown Honolulu, just beyond South Street. And this is the area that we're talking about where the trees will be removed. There'll be more bus routes because we're not going to Alamoana Center as originally planned. Alamoana was going to be, of course, is a major bus transit area. Yeah, so so it is something that we have to process, like, okay, less greenery, more of the concrete guideway and it's just going to be a different cityscape down there. Yes, it is. And you know, this is not the first time that Hart has had to, to make some changes. I think probably one of the biggest ones that we all know about is, remember, they were going to have that 1,600-stall uh, Pearl Highlands parking garage. Well, that is no longer the case. That will be sacrificed. Remember that the city is also still looking for a contractor for those last three miles of elevated guideway. Those three miles will include six rail stations. So that's something that they've got to work on as well. And being able to shorten the length of the project and save some money is 
uh, viewed as being in the best interest now that the rail is up and running. Yeah, but uh, lots of uh, changes yet to come, and this at least flags something that has been a bit of a sensitive spot uh, uh, for people in Honolulu. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if there's one bright spot, uh, a lot of people do uh, ride the bus system here. It's it's pretty good. It's well connected, and and having more buses along Halekavila into that that quote unquote civic center will probably be a good thing. Remember, Middle Street is a major uh, bus transit station as well. But you know, this is something to try and get people to 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 ride the rail. Something that Hart has been pushing for and Mayor Blangiardi. But again, just upsetting Kevin's story today. I'm not, I must share a personal bias here. I love trees. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. they're really wonderful I'm, uh, and feel that they can provide good shade and so many good things. But I guess we're making the way for progress. Yeah. Right, right. Hopefully hopefully they replace those uh, trees with uh, with some greenery. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, that was political editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect watersheds and aquifers since 1929, for fresh water now and for future generations. Learn more at protectoahuwater.org. Can I hear your Italian accent? Well, see, if I'm going to do a real Italian accent, I'm going to break all the levels in this (laughs) mic because Italians around me are, they're not afraid to get loud. You know, it's like a jolt of cappuccino. I'm Brittany Luce. Why bad accents actually make a movie better. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash strong. the barriers to our economic growth and success? Well, business leaders, elected and state county officials, and academics are gathering at an economic conference tomorrow to ask these questions. How can Hawaii build infrastructure faster and cheaper? What will it take for the economy to rebound after the Maui wildfires? Seth Colby is a tax research and planning officer for the state tax department. He sat down in our studios to talk uh, with the conversations Russell Subiono about these issues. This conference is based on the hypothesis that, you know, if you go back to the 1980s, 1990s, the same thing about Hawaii's economy, right? We're overly dependent on a few industries. Mm. Everything is very expensive to build, housing. And so this is based on the hypothesis that, wow, okay, maybe it's not the lack of ideas. Maybe it's not even the lack of people, because I'm sure that there's been great people in public office and working for the government and the private sector over the last 40 years. Maybe it's the process that is driving all of these things, right? So the idea with democracy is it represents the values of the people and what they want. 
I don't think people want high cost of housing. No. Last year, we were investigating the high cost of housing. We were listening to business owners running around DPP trying to get a permit on the last day before they went out of business. And I don't think that represents our, like, I don't really hear that as a cultural value mm. here in Hawaii. And I don't think the people at DPP want that. I don't think the private sector wants that. I don't think anybody wants that, right? But why do we have that, right? And that's been a chronic problem for 30 or 40 years. And so that's what we're going to really explore. We're going to get people from the private sector, the public sector, to just tell their stories of like what it takes to get a project through, right? And all the different things that they have to do in order to understand. And what we're, we're not really interested in saying like, oh, this is the one policy that we need to change, or these are the people that are the problem. But like, look at the, like, the culture that we're operating in, the political culture. Earlier this year, I talked to Chamber of Commerce Hawaii's president and CEO, Sherry Menor McNamara, about improving how business is done in Hawaii. She pointed toward burdensome rules and regulations as the reason for slow economic growth in our state. How much does that factor in? I mean... It- Okay, let's take out burdensome, right? And just call them like regulations, right? And regulations are usually put in place. Something has occurred or somebody cares about something and they put it there. The problem with all these regulations, if you put regulation on top of regulation on top of regulation, they interact in ways that most people, when they're writing the law, they don't understand, right? right? So part of this is going back and looking at going through all these regulations and seeing how they interact with one another and seeing how they influence all of our behaviors. So it it sounds like maybe each individual regulation was meant to accomplish some good or protect the public in some way. But now that there's a bunch of different regulations all having to work together or compiled on top of each other, it seems like that might be something that's slowing things down. The conference will bring together elected officials, business leaders, government employees, and academics to discuss this issue. I feel like if you talk to the average person, they might kind of roll their eyes at the thought of all these high-level people, you know, just talking about the issue. Are they the only people that can address this, or can communities also step up and find solutions? This is the unique thing about our state, right? I was just at a, a national convention with people from all these different states, and Hawaii is very unique in that we have 1.4 million people. So you can really get a lot of people in the same room to talk about these issues. Now, there are specialists that think about these issues, and we do want specialists. We usually want like somebody who's in charge of environmental policy to have some kind of environmental background. However, what's really important is for local people and you know the relative community to say, no, these are our values, and I want you to express our values in terms of policy. And that's where it's super important. And what we're trying to do in these conferences is this is actually, you know, business leaders, all these people, but it's actually for the average person. Why? Because we want to explain that there's trade-offs involved in all policy. So for example, the environment is incredibly important here, right? But if you prioritize the environment over everything else, you're not gonna get anything done. Right. And so we have to be aware of the trade-offs. And so part of this is educating the people saying, yeah, we do want to care for our environment. Yeah, we really do want to care for our rich cultural heritage here. And we need to move forward and build housing. So how are we going to do that all together? And that's one of the things that we're trying to accomplish with this conference is we're trying to get people together and just 
educate people so they can make pragmatic decisions and talk with their leaders to say, this is what we want, and we understand the trade-offs that are inevitably involved in policy decisions. It's interesting that you bring up the uniqueness of Hawaii and our cultural values. You know, we, we are very unique here. We have a unique cultural history and diversity. Does that different cultural outlook and the need to be respectful of culture and history, does that help or hurt our attempts to grow our economy? In my experience, just as a you know, professional and a personal, it's always good to know who you are and what your values are, right? So you can express your values going forward. And the fact that Hawaii is very cognizant of the values that it represents, I think that's a strength, right? How those values are actually implemented or administered and done in a practical way, that's what we're trying to explore here. And the other thing is, you know, values help us understand our trade-offs, right? So if the environment is the most important thing, are we willing to pay double the price of housing or not build housing anymore, not do everything for our values? That is fine. That represents who we are, but it's important for us to understand what we're doing. And so what we're really trying to do with these conferences is like make things explicit. And part of our values is our explicit, but we also want to be aware that there's trade-offs to every single value in life. One of the sessions planned during the conference looks at the economic development projects of the 60s, 70s, and 80s that spurred rapid growth and social transformation. I don't want you to give everything away, but What's an example of how we can look to the past to develop plans for the future? Yeah, so if you actually look at like the history of Hawaii, the last time we actually decided to do something big was the 70s. And that was like the Constitutional Convention. And that was a time where people really came together and decided we wanted a different trajectory for Hawaii. I haven't talked to all these people, and so I'm really interested to finding out these answers for myself. And I encourage people to, you know, there is the hybrid option. People can join in, and we're going to try to pull out some segments in the future. But there is this feeling that if we want to do something, we can, and we've done it in the past. And I think that's a really exciting and empowering idea. The conference will also cover opportunities and challenges to economic recovery on Maui. What are your thoughts on what might be the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity there? Probably trust, right? So. You can imagine what's going on in people's lives. And it, like the Maui fire, I think, was a catalyst for something larger, which is uh, people feel like things are changing more than the, what they control. And the, the first thing you do when you're under assault is to try to freeze everything and like just grab onto things, right? And I understand that. Unfortunately, or unfortunately, that's in the world we live in, we need to let things go and we need to let things move in a way that's intentional. So building the community trust to figure out who are the leaders that different people trust so we can move forward and make these decisions which have the potential to make things better is, I think, a really hard thing. And so we have Governor Josh Green coming, and he's been working. You know, I've never been involved in the Maui fires. I'm an economist, so I do the economic consequences. But this is just what I'm seeing is like you see a lot of our community leaders really trying to engage and cultivate a feeling of trust so people feel that they can make decisions. And inevitably, in a complex society, we have to like give power to other people to make decisions, yeah. right? And how we feel safe and who we can do that, I think that's a huge 
this is a huge issue going forward and not just for Maui fires. I think it was it's emblematic of this larger thing, what we're talking about in the conference, which is, are we comfortable with change and who are we comfortable leading this change? Seth Colby, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. That was the state tax office's Seth Colby talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. The Hawaii Economic Association's annual conference takes place tomorrow at the Halekulani Hotel. Uh, In-seat tickets are actually sold out, but you can still attend virtually. We'll have a link for more information on the conversation page of our website later today. We are all out of time today. Up tomorrow, we prepare for the defueling of the Red Hill facility next week by looking at the history of the underground fuel tank facility. We'll re-air a show from March 2022 where we discuss the construction with two men who had a part in it being declared a National Historic Landmark. What are your concerns about the defueling process? Call our talkback line. Record something, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.